This is Greg Tides, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates. Go Seton Hall. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead, guarded by Ochefu, gets the step into the lane, goes to the bucket, layup, rolls around and in, and a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! Coming to you just west of the Ward Place Gate, from San Diego, California, he is Mike Dizzy Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tommy Chilkaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. How you doing today, Mikey? Good morning, Tommy. I'm, I'm out of responses at this point. I'm just going <laughs> to throw it back to you. Mikey, it's an exciting weekend here at the Casa de Kaharski, man. It's right plumb right in the middle of two birthdays for us. My youngest is having her first communion today, and we've got a first here at Left Coast Pirates, Mike. We've got our first international interview. Wait, wait didn't we have our Taurus Cornishers? But that was when he was with Denver. I'm talking about we're going all the way out to Europe to interview one of the more famous Seton Hall Pirates. Oh, so this is the first time that our guest is on foreign soil as we conduct the interview. Okay. I, I see where you're going with this. Right. And who are we bringing in? A member of the 2020 class in the Seton Hall University Athletic Hall of Fame, Remus Caucanus. This is where you want me to date myself and be like, well, I went to school when Remus was in school, right? I was a freshman. He was a sophomore. And I, I fell in love with the team that went to the Sweet 16, Shaheen Holloway, Remus Caucanus, the Mad Bomber. Darius Lane, the, the tie shine heroics against Temple, double overtime wins. Yeah, that, that, very exciting time to be getting into your Seton Hall fandom, being in school, getting caught up in the euphoria. Special time for me, special time for a lot of Seton Hall fans. And I know that Remus probably holds a special place in most of those fans' hearts because of the contributions he made to Seton Hall during that time. So I'm really excited to do my thing, which is dive into the minutiae of some of those games and talk to him about the rest of his career as well. He was a major contributor to the men's basketball team that advanced to the NCAA tournament Sweet 16 during his senior season. Played for the Pirates from 1996 to 2000, scoring 1,292 career points, good for 31st on the all-time scoring list. After graduation, his career took him to a number of countries, finding the most success in Italy. Was a member of the senior men's Lithuanian national team, winning bronze in 2007 Euro Cup and participating in two Summer Olympics. In early February of this year, it was announced he would be selected to the Seton Hall University Athletic Hall of Fame as a member of its 2020 class. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates Live, Remus Caucanus. Remus, how are you today? Great, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for joining the show, Rubens. I told you it was going to be an over-the-top intro. What do you, what do you think? It's amazing. <laughs> I'm ready to play. <laughs> All right, let, let, let's do this. So if you've listened to any of our recent podcasts, what we like to start off now is just kind of doing a, a COVID-19 check-in, kind of see everybody's perspective as to how they're dealing with it, if they're part of the world, and make sure that their family and close ones are safe. So how are you doing with the pandemic where you're at right now? And better yet, where are you right now? As of uh, this moment, uh, currently I'm in Spain uh, on the island of uh, Mallorca. We have moved here recently for, uh, for the family reasons. Here it's been pretty quiet, pretty uh, safe regarding the COVID-19 and I think quite lucky to, uh, to live in a small place where you can actually feel free and and move around pretty freely and not to be afraid uh, of anything sort of sort of these things so you said family reasons is, is that because you have family that's close there or or something else uh matter of fact uh, my daughter starting to play some serious tennis so uh she has to be coached by this person who uh who currently is based in Mallorca, so uh, we took a chance and uh, took this took advantage of it. Pretty cool. <laughs> and we All try right. to enjoy the life of the island. All right, so the, the next question that we normally kind of lead off with lately is also talking with all of our guests to comment on their opinion as to what's going on in the United States as to how they're handling social injustice as a country. But, you know, you're not here in the United States right now, but you also come from a background that is far too familiar with political unrest. Early in your days, Back when you were only 13 years old, going far back to March 1990, your homeland, Lithuania, declared its independence from the Soviet Union. In an interview that you did all the way back with the New York Times in 2000, you said, I don't really like talking about my past. It hurts when, when I have to talk about those things, but sometimes it comes up. Teammates are worth talking to and telling them what you went through and, and what really happened. It's now more than 30 years later. Are you able to share with us? Some of those experiences is what you had to deal with when you were growing up. Yes, uh, it's it's quite quite difficult, of course. But um, I mean, all of us we have to go through and remember once in a while our past and uh, learn from it, and maybe uh, tell uh, your kids about it uh, so they so, so they would know and uh, uh, be better of it uh, and take advantage uh, of the situation that they're living in now and uh, not to take things for granted. I think what's going on in U.S., and I think it happens uh, in quite a few countries around the world uh, regarding the racism and discrimination and these sort of things, is that uh, I think discrimination in general should be a criminal act, should be prosecuted. And uh, as of... uh, as a thievery and things like that. So it is the way we look at it and the way we accept this thing uh, that was happening in the past is is truly, uh, in my opinion, is is a wrong thing. And uh, I hope that uh, one day that any kind of discrimination should be prosecuted and treated as a criminal act. And maybe this approach will uh, really put people uh, in perspective and make them think what's what's actually a right thing to do. You know, my past is, is probably quite particular, you know, but I think every one of us can maybe see or learn or maybe sort of move on from these things and try to understand what other people will go through. 
uh, in U.S. At, in this moment, African Americans they they have you know quite a difficult uh, situation where they have to really fight for their rights and really bring it out uh, into public, and uh, it, it's 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 quite a I would say probably quite similar situation happened to Lithuanians uh, when we were occupied since from 1940 until uh, 1991 and we were always uh, trying to fight and survive uh, and be Lithuanians uh, rather than part of a USSR and called the Russians. It's it's a part of a life that I don't really sort of enjoy talking about but uh, it may it made uh, me of who I am right now at this moment and uh, it made me strong it made me appreciate life it made me to uh, feel for others it made me uh, to try to help others and uh, it's it happened what happened and i can't cry about it i just try to help others i i don't want to downplay anything that's happening within our own country but you allude to the word fight for your rights you guys had tanks rolling down the local streets where you grew up. Yes. I mean, that's just a, a completely different perspective than what we're seeing today. I mean, there were people that were dying, you know, as as they were trying to occupy uh, certain buildings and 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 combat the protests. From what I read, that's just I I just really wanted to kind of get your take on that relative to everything we're seeing. Yes, it's uh, you know for uh, for a kid 13 years old, you don't really understand. You just uh, see. Uh, the military the army things are changing rapidly and you just uh, live the moment but in general terms i had no idea what was going on i just knew that uh, they are tr they are trying to uh, to hurt us and uh, put us in a, in a very bad situation so i can't uh, i can't really uh, say that my uh, my take my understanding of this that situation was was accurate i only understood uh, later on when i turned 18 19 and, and really uh, start to realize that we we were we've been living basically under iron curtain not seeing anything not learning and not understanding the whole perspective uh, what's important in life well, like you mentioned, the occupation ended in 91, and instead of getting hustled into potentially a Soviet team, in 95, you got to play for the Lithuanian junior national team. But what we saw was that a conversation with Marius Janulis, who's a fellow Lithuanian and former Syracuse Orangeman, eventually got you interested in playing in the States. It's really hard for me to give any Syracuse Orangeman any credit for anything, <laughs> but what did Marius tell you about U.S. basketball in that conversation that made you want to move out here? Actually, yeah, he was, Marius was my, uh, still is, best friend. And uh, he was my roommate on the junior national team. And all the, uh, all the questions that I asked him, I think, think he was tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> but we played together in uh, youth uh, world championships in Greece and uh, there were a couple of coaches from colleges came and asked me if I would like to play in the US for one of the colleges you know but I was still in high school and uh, I still had one more year to complete so I chose 
this opportunity to go to U.S. and learn English, to l- learn a little bit of a culture, because it, believe me, there was quite a culture shock for me, <laughs> and uh, quite a change. And I, you know, I thank God. I thank the opportunity. I thank my good friend Marius for telling me uh, what's out there, because uh, truly, what he truly said is that uh, this is the country where you have a lot of choices and if you work hard you can you can achieve a lot and you can combine education and basketball together and this was the most important thing at that time now you mentioned culture shock you moved eventually to plattsburgh new york and as someone who grew up on the east coast i have no idea where that place is being a product of an immigrant family myself i heard tons of stories about culture shock and how it was to get assimilated into the country what specifically can you talk about it was like for you to transition to u.s life well, I remember like this day. I remember the day that I arrived to uh, New York, upstate New York. It's actually close to Corning, Elmira. It's a small town of Prattsburg, and where it's it's a bit of a little, in the middle of nowhere. But truly, the people are amazing there. Amazing because I arrived there, and the coach picked me up at, at the airport and drove me, uh, you know, to this family. And the first thing. Uh, I remember looking up in the dictionary how to say uh, that I, w- I would like to go to train. So I said, when I practice. <laughs> 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 they were like, oh, my God, it's, it's a nighttime. <laughs> and they explained to me that there are parts of the season where you play baseball, where you play soccer, where you play basketball, where you play different sports. And for me, it was like... Uh, I can't play basketball. I can't play basketball. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) So I was uh, very worried uh, in the beginning. But then, you know, I was so lucky to stay with Underhill uh, family that took me in, took care of me. And every morning, Jeannie Underhill, my guardian mother, she drove me at 5.30 in the morning to the gym. And I was, for me, this was the, the most important thing because I, I felt so blessed and lucky because there was someone who was willing to help to just to get to the gym. Before, it was not, <laughs> I never had this uh, opportunity or a person who could do this for me. And uh, so every morning I got up before school for a couple hours to shoot. Uh, then I went to school, then I practiced with the girls, then I practiced basketball, then practiced with the younger, uh, the, the junior high, and then I practiced with the older kids, with the so-called senior team. So try try to you know, be in the gym six, seven hours, and then I went to the weight room and got home, studied, and went to got up again for school, for practice. And for me, this was the best time. This was uh, the best time because I learned, I saw how open the kids were. I saw how everybody uh, tried to help me. My English was <laughs> awful. <laughs> I couldn't understand anything the first month and I tried to speak and oh my God. Uh, I pulled out every international word, word that I knew <laughs> out of my vocabulary to make it sound English. <laughs> so, but 
you know, this, uh, I was never afraid to speak and try to interact and learn because it was the opportunity to grab onto something. You can downplay the, the situation that I was in. And even though it was, you know, for, for a lot of people, uh, probably it would be okay. You had a family that took care of you. That was easy. However, I, I was so scared that one day this thing, this thing could fall apart you know, that I would have to go back and, and I would lose it all. So I felt very responsible and uh, uh, put pressure on myself to, uh, you know, to do the best that I could in school and uh, in sports. And I really, really wanted to succeed. Well, I'm not going to lie, Remus. I had to look up where Plattsburgh, New York was on a map. So how the heck does Seton Hall in South Orange, New Jersey, of all places, end up on your radar? Actually, it's not Plattsburgh. It's Prattsburgh with a P. Prattsburgh. Okay, good stuff. It's a Mickey Mouse yeah, operation. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's upstate New York. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's between like Corning, Bath, uh, Elmira. Uh, it's towards Rochester. The audience Rochester, has no <laughs> idea where any of those places are. Don't even try to fool yourself. Anyway, it's cold. <laughs> it's. Cold. <laughs> it's it's freezing but uh, yeah I, you know actually i remember uh, at that time we started playing some games and one of my first high school games i had like 50 points or something something and then the, my coach doug lampman at that time he sent out quite a few videotapes to schools and universities and uh, that's how he got the attention and thanks to him you know he uh, he helped me with this uh, transition, and thanks to him, the schools got interested in me. So I, I saw that. So you put, put in 58 in one game. And so besides Seton Hall, who else is coming after you at that time once your coach sent out the videos? If I remember well, I was recruited by St. Bonaventure quite heavily, uh, Penn State, Pittsburgh, Richmond, uh, Clemson, but, you know, Seton Hall, uh, St. John's. But the most serious ones were uh, Seton Hall and uh, St. Bonavich. Uh, St. Bonavich, in fact, was not too far away. I think it was an hour and 15 away, something like that. I mean, so so no, but, no, offense, uh, no offense to St. Bonaventure's, but like Seton Hall is a no-brainer over St. Bonaventure, right? <laughs> yeah, for me, it was no <laughs> <laughs> Well, as we always like to say, we're very happy you made the choice you did. You came to Seton Hall in 96-97, my senior year. The team itself was struggling. It went 10-18 and 18 that year, 5-13 and 13 in the Big East. But you came out and you made your contributions right away. Almost eight points per game, two and a half rebounds. And now outside of Lavelle Sanders and Donnell Williams, it was rather a young team. And you weren't the only freshman to be playing in the backcourt for George Blaney that year. You had a pretty talented point guard who'd go on to earn himself second team all Big East. Now, what were your first impressions of Shaheen Holloway and how good was he in that first year at Seton Hall? Well, Shah, he had uh, he had that mentality to pull the team. He had that uh, leadership. He had that strength. And he was, I think he was a mature already to to play at the high level for me i just tried to do the most simple things not to overdo things and uh try to help the team with the hustle plays things that the coach coach asked me to do and 
for me, it was very, very uh, sort of a year of really learning what American basketball is really all about. You know, I wasn't handling the ball too much. And throughout the, my whole college career, it was like that. You know, I was more considered just a spot up uh, shooter in my early career. So I, you know, having a Shaheen on the court uh, who can create for anyone, I just played uh, played my role and tried to uh, do the best I can in this uh, in this situation. And of course, later on, I learned play to the game a little bit more different, more universal, more adapted to uh, uh, sort of all around game. Uh, rather than just playing the role. I mean, I learned so much. Every day watching Shaheen, how he dribbles, how he attacks, how he controls, how he watches the mismatches, how he reads the game, I learned from him so much. Now, it's documented that by your senior year, you two became really close. Was that uh, more of a immediate bonding, or did that kind of take time to get to there? Well, of course, it took time because my English. (laughs) (laughs) I think I remember to this day. And then when I came, I was introduced to Shah. I think first day was orientation day or something like that. And he started saying something, and I'm just looking at him thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to play basketball? I have no idea. And he was asking me something, and I was just going like Tom Hanks in Terminal. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. It was, but, you know, uh, my confidence grew. I learned so much, you know, already my sophomore year, I felt so much better. You know, we had a different coach uh, and then I had to, again, adapt. But my, I think, junior year was probably the year when I really felt like I can I can really help this team. I can really pull this team and I, I could help other guys and I could do something and we could definitely win something and i think that's why senior year we honestly we matured as a chemistry i mean with shaheen i think already sophomore year started clicking quite well and junior year you know and uh, he trusted me and can always rely on me that uh, i will support him and and I, I felt I felt proud, you know. I felt I felt something that you know the guys, you know, accepted, you know, this Lithuanian guy coming out of who knows where, man. <laughs> Pratsburg. <laughs> no idea. This Lithuanian guy from Pratsburg. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was just happy, you know. I was just happy that I can actually be in this situation. Well, you mentioned you had a new coach in your sophomore year, and that's probably because the team struggled so much. In your freshman year, Coach Blaney was let go at the end of the year, and now you have to, you know, you first you got you had to get used to a new country, then you have to get new used to the college life, and now you got to get used to a new coach. How difficult was it to see the coach that recruited you be gone after your first year? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the whole system changed, everything approach changed, the mindset changed, and the way of working changed. That's the only thing that I wasn't afraid of is to work, to work hard, because I knew that if I run faster than anybody, if I lift more than anybody, if I shoot more than anybody, uh, if I do, if I practice more intensely than anybody, I have a chance to play and get better and maybe to achieve some of my dreams. And 
I was I was happy that coach recognized that in me, and that gave me confidence because you know we I remember these uh, crazy that's the crazy suicides we used to run and uh, these seventeens, you know, when uh, you have to run uh, across the court seventeen times in one minute, and I was I was just. Man, I'm not running this again. I have to win this no matter what. I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling pain just visually trying to. Oh, seventeens, oh, yeah. Oh, that that and, sounds uh, brutal. Yeah. So if you don't do something or you don't play as a team or you had to run and uh, and if you come in come in first, then you don't have to run the second one. So I was like, man, I am winning this no matter what. So uh, yeah, it's and that actually, you know, it taught me to set my mind that if I go 100% full speed at every every second of a practice I will be you know comfortable and I will feel you know I'll, I'll improve and it'll improve faster than anybody else and and that that sort of proved my uh, throughout the whole career and not only in college and also professionally and you know playing everywhere you could see that the intensity that's what actually was the most important factor in uh, in getting better let's stick with coach amaker here for a second because we're we're transitioning to the sophomore season and from a fan base we were super excited to kind of hear the announcement of this young upstart duke assistant coach coming to take over the program did you guys have that same level of excitement and then i want to also know behind the scenes you already started talking about some of the suicides what was his style on the court tommy was cool he was calm you know nice nice put together suit like jay right nowadays but I want to hear more of the behind the scenes. What what don't we know about Tommy Amaker? In the beginning, I was I was just not sure of anything. It was it was the coach that who came in and immediately set his rules, and the rules were very clear. You know, we win games with defense, so the best defensive players will play. And this is something that I really needed to uh, improve and get better. And I was sort of took this challenge as a sort of personal challenge. And I think I won a couple of times, even the best defensive player of the team that we used to have awards. And Tommy was during practice was very, very uh, intense. You know, he was very fair, very correct. And I'm still in touch with him. I still keep in touch with him. Uh, we talk once in a while. And I can't thank any other coach as much as I would like to thank him because uh, his values, uh, the way he saw the game, the way he saw the hard work and the way everything was perceived and portrayed that set the sort of the guidance, that set the roadmap for me. I always, always remember, and I always thought that if I survived Tommy Amaker's practices, I could survive anywhere else in the world. There's no way that when watching a game with Tommy Amaker coaching, that I'm thinking behind the scenes, he's this practice, this practice monger. He's he's running you guys all over the court. He's a drill sergeant. You would have never thought that. There's there's no way yeah. that he gives off that persona as he walks the sidelines for 40 minutes. All right, so you talk about this roadmap. And it seems like the roadmap worked for you. Your numbers between your sophomore season and your junior season essentially doubled. You're going from eight points a game up to 13 and a half. You're still crashing the boards at almost five a game, two assists. And your three-point shooting now improves to 40%. And now you're shooting also 84% from the free throw line. 
These are massive jumps statistically. What happened under his tutelage or his structure that made your game improve so much? I just uh, got comfortable uh, with English. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the ball. Give me the ball. <laughs> but uh, on the serious side, uh, I think I got comfortable and the uh, team and the coaches uh, actually put a little bit more responsibility on my shoulders. And I remember Chris Collins, uh, an assistant coach at that time, uh, used to come and before the practice before the last practice before the game, the following game, he would say, Remus, I just got this phone call from uh, Khalid El Amin and Richard Hamilton called me, left this voice message. They said, <laughs> this Lithuanian call Kenas, we're going to kill him. Where is he? Oh my God. Come on, Chris, Chris Collins go. playing mind games. Chris <laughs> Collins playing mind games. Get out of here. <laughs> Oh, it was awesome. I love it. We were, oh, it's... And Chris it, Collins, he, he, my... he just graduated. <laughs> you, you see pictures of Chris Collins, he looks like a little baby on the sideline back then. <laughs> yeah, he the was. Videos, right? Yeah, but it was great. It was great because every time we would play some, I don't know, West Virginia or St. John's or any kind of school, and he would just come up with the name that somebody <laughs> called him. <laughs> Or they were talking trash about Lithuania, or you know, they called you Russian. <laughs> so, this way, I, you know, I sort of felt uh, a little bit of a connection that you know, they can say anything they feel free to say about me, about my past, and it, the connection, the sort of the atmosphere grew. And they expected a little bit more leadership from me, which for me was a great compliment because uh, from Lithuanian guy being in U.S. and playing among these super athletes, I, I wasn't going to let them down. I took this very seriously and I tried to work extra hard and even increase uh, all the time and come at night, uh, at midnight, even if I could to shoot and and uh, actually, I remember Gail Bryant, Mark Bryant's uh, sister. Oh, she, oh I, she I know Gail very well. My freshman year, she beat the hell out of me at a court once. We told Mark about that. He, <laughs> he got a big kick out of it. Yeah. And uh, so she used to let me uh, let me go, let you know, let me in in the gym and uh, watch uh, and shoot at midnight. I was for me. This was this is what I remember. You know, the best moments. And I think that's what, you know, sort of feeling very comfortable, feeling uh, home, feeling, uh, feeling welcome uh, in, in, in school and on the team and being already a little bit of a leader, sort of helping Shah sort of lead the team. This really gave me a lot of confidence and I tried to do my best. And that's why I think uh, the stats went up quite significantly. So to end that season, the team lost at Old Dominion in the first round of the NIT after also losing to Georgia Tech in the first round the prior year. Now, Mike and I have always said we should never accept any more bids to the NIT. Seton Hall has not done well in the NIT since the 1950s. But heading into that summer, how important was it for you and Shaw to make the NCAA tournament in your senior season? It was, it was everything, you know. I mean, we knew that we have a good team. We knew we had we had a good season, and 
we just had to uh, sort of continue being consistent, continue to play the way we played. And, uh, you know, Shah struggled a little bit on and off a couple previous years and injuries here and there. And But he was a soul of the team. He was a leader. I wanted to help in any way possible. And it was important to pull all the young guys, the super talented young guys that came in our senior year, to pull them forward and show them and then you know that we can do something significant because I think we had some of the best recruiting class that year, our senior year, for the past recent years. And we felt like now this is the time. Now this is the time. And the fire, I think, Seton Hall that year didn't sort of consolidate it and united us as a team and the whole school that sort of pulled us together and really push ourselves intensity-wise and playing really, really together and playing actually for the school. So I think that's why uh, the importance to do well uh, sort of raised the bar uh, in every game and practice. So Remus Shaw talked about that specifically because we brought up that question. There was this big win against St. John's. The entire campus is partying. And then, and then we had the tragedy. And I was on campus at that time as well. And everybody was shocked. We were in awe. You got all the, the TV cameras and the media on campus. And I remember Shaw saying that he felt like the basketball team got some of the blame for that because their victory caused this like massive partying that happened on campus. And he thought that the team really needed to do what you said, rally around the, the campus and the university and kind of give them a distraction as this was all going on. What was your perspective as, as that was all going down? I, I honestly couldn't believe. I honestly couldn't believe what happened. A couple of years prior to that, everybody was waiting for us to start winning against major schools, against big schools. And once, we, once this happened, once we won against St. John's, very important game, very big game, this happens. You know, you feel like, oh, my God, can't, this can't be happening, you know? It's, it was sort of a little bit demoralizing fact is that you you know you want to show the school you want to show all the all the universities uh, everyone around you that you you know you're a good school you we're a good team that you can you know do something very uh, special and this happens and you you know you feel really guilty you feel awful you feel you know you have to do this on a consistent basis so this doesn't happen. So people start taking this as a normal thing. I remember Tommy, Tommy's, you know, talking about this. That, you know, this is this is the time where we have to do this every single day, every single practice, every single. We have to raise the bar, and we have to be more together more than ever. The team did rally around that point. You went on to win seven of your next eight to get to eighteen and four. But then you kind of limped to the finish line, losing four of your last five. What was the team's confidence like heading into the NCAA tournament at that point? We did lose a couple of games. They were a little bit uh, sort of, I would say, a normal thing because we were on a, quite a good streak before. The East was very good conference that year. Very good. We felt like maybe we got too comfortable at that time and we had to push a little bit forward. You know, when you play well and all of a sudden you don't win, I think it was a game against Notre Dame also, maybe. Yeah, Troy Murphy had like 35 loss. or something like that, right? 
Yeah, and it, we had to find uh, find a way to win the game, and unfortunately, it slipped away. But we we had it. We we knew that we could win, but it's still a loss, though. So we were confident enough that if we go to tournament, we can win close games because, man, we we're not letting this happen again and uh, we definitely could pick up even more on a defensive end as we showed it in tournament and uh, it's just you know it's, it was it was the matter of constantly pushing because we had quite a few talented young guys and you you just had to keep them aware keep them uh, sort of ready to fight every single moment and I think it was our big responsibility and, and Shah and me we understood that uh, we, we can't we can't let anyone relax for a second that's a heck of a foreshadowing before we go into the next set of questions because win close games you certainly did well I mean that that team that year ironically goes four and0 in overtime games you have a you have a game at Georgetown early in the season you have the classic game at the rack where they, they call the timeout when they don't have any left and you guys rally in ot it was, there's a lot of classic games where you guys are always coming out on the positive side of, of the ledger so let's dive into this tournament run because for most fans this is the most success and some glory days that they want to kind of hold on to seton hall has not had the kind of success in the ncaa tournament since your team made that run back in 99 2000 and you personally had one heck of a run. You brought your average up for those three games to 16 and a half, four boards, two assists, 57% from three-point range, which is the best in Seton Hall program history for the NCAA tournament for three-point shooting. Pretty impressive stuff. But let's dive into each one of those games because I had a lot of fun as a, a recent fan posted these games back on the internet about a month ago. So the full video was out there to go back and watch for the first time in a long time. So I'm, I'm, Tom yells at me. I like to get into the nuts and bolts of the game. So I'm going to really start picking out some of the details. So, so indulge me for a second, right? You play Oregon 72, 71. It's, it's an overtime game, clearly contrasting styles. Oregon wants to run up and down the floor. You guys want to grind it out in the half court. I'm watching this game and Sammy is basically changing every shot in the paint from what I can see, right? Even shots he's not blocking. They know he's there. Shaw has his best game of his career, 27 points. It's the game winner going coast to coast, but you didn't do too poorly yourself. 14 points, five boards, two assists. But there was one point that stood out to me early in that game. Ian Eagle on the broadcast says, Coach Amaker told him that you were playing on an ankle that was about 75%. And then at the 15 minute mark in the second half, you re-injure it and they got to take you back to the locker room. How bad was the ankle injury coming into the game? And how serious was the pain in that moment? Because you're back out on that floor in, in under five minutes. It was actually really bad. To tell you the truth, I wasn't practicing during the NCAA tournament at all. So I was just riding the bike and all the guys were basically training and practicing, getting ready for the games. And I was actually, even before the going to the tournament, I remember I had a strep throat. Then, uh, you know, uh, it was a senior game where I actually had a pretty bad ankle, in ankle injury. So I couldn't, I couldn't practice. So I had to do a lot of rehab and, and so on. And so when the game came, I was sort of pretty, pretty stiff, I would say, with the leg. But luckily, uh, you know, thanks to the medical staff and trainers, and got me ready a little bit. So, of course, I had some painkillers, uh, you know, to play with. Otherwise, I had to get some uh, help 
to retape it, tighten up, and oh my God, this. But you know, I, the game goes point to point, and you go in on the court, you like <laughs> kill everyone. <laughs> so adrenaline is like ah. So it's it's. So as you're running back to the locker room to get retaped, because that's basically how they're kind of portraying it on on the TV. Yeah. Is there any question in your mind that you're not going back into that game? Oh no! It was like, it was like we're just going to see what's going on, redo it, and tighten up so I don't feel it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. Well, you came back in, and with seven minutes and seven seconds left, you hit a floating pull-up jumper from the left elbow to give the Pirates a 57-47 lead. But it wouldn't be a Seton Hall game if we didn't try to make it interesting because Oregon responds with a 9-0 run. So what's the team's confidence like in the huddle at the under four TV timeout three minutes later knowing that you had a double-digit lead and now it's a dogfight again? You know... uh... I, I don't know. I think for me and Shah, we uh, we weren't panicking, but I think the uh, younger guys may be trying to feed off a little bit of the of uh, who, whoever is ready and confident. You can you can have these lapses, you know. It, it can happen. You can't play consistently so well the whole uh, the whole game because of uh, you know the style they played. So our way of playing that game was take away the threes force him to drive to the basket and once Sammy on the court he's going to change these shots and that actually worked and we were quite aggressive not letting them shoot open shots from outside forcing them really bodying them up and so they could go to the basket and there if we don't get beat too easily it's, it's it wasn't that easy to win against so we knew that we knew that and you know we had to stick with our uh, way of playing and that did help us that's why i felt confident and that's why at the end of regulation i you know i was sure that we can we can play well because they weren't unbeatable team they were group very good team but i was sure we can win and at the end of regulation i remember uh, you know when i tied the game take it to the overtime the my the only thought was like I'm just I have to go I have to go to the basket come on let's go guys you know and you, you steal it all my thunder here Remus I got this whole thing set up here to, to kind no, of Mike, Mike it's not your thunder it's bad. his thunder Mike knock my it bad. off I, I want to make him I, I'm putting him on a pedestal here so so Oregon <laughs> takes the lead you got to set the stage Remus you got to set the stage my bad my bad that's why I'm not working for no you know TV or oh we're we're not working for anything this so Oregon hits the two free throws there's twelve seconds to go and obviously the ball goes to Shaheen and he dribbles up the ball and goes into the deep right corner and I'm like uh oh where's he going but then he then here you come and you're curling around to the free throw line and that's when he kind of gets to the ball you attack with your left hand and you get right to the rim for the game tying basket but this is where it kind of gets into my minutia of the game I go back and replay that sequence and you're on the left side of the court initially as Shah's bringing up the ball and Greg Morton sets a pick at like the top of the circle and you're coming around to kind of present yourself to the ball. That seemed to me that it was basically instinctual or did Tommy Amaker draw that up in the huddle uh, before the Oregon took the two free throws? Well, we used to run this play quite, quite a lot. Basically what we would do is that uh, Shah would try to uh, attack or draw defense on himself 
on the right side and I would come off some at the same time and Greg Greg Morton would set the screen so sort of it's it's like a decoy play with uh to you know to set me for a shot they knew this play because we we ran this place quite often and uh, with the quality of screens I would get get an open shot good look and what Shad did is he really did a good job drawing a defense because he created this opportunity. But the, the, the other guys, Oregon, uh, defended it quite well. They trailed me quite well. So, But that opened the opportunity for me to go to the basket. I just uh, just played it like it was a normal game. And uh, like any other read, it would be any uh, game during the season. And executed. we executed well. So told you, Tommy. I, I have a trained eye, Tommy. I knew that was a play. I knew. I knew. They, I knew they weren't freelancing. I knew, I knew that wasn't freelance. Mike likes to brag because he saw the game last night. I remember sitting in a bar in San Francisco, watching this game. I'm the only Seton Hall fan, surrounded by Oregon fans, and. You know, I'm, so. I'm, I was down in Florida on spring break. I, I, I just remember I jumping up on. and down at the end of that game. You go ahead, you win that game, you move on to the second round against number two seeded Temple, and you win again 67-65 in overtime. The team shoots an Eastern Regional record 15 of 30 from three, but things didn't start off that well for the Pirates that day. Temple raced out to a 14-3 lead on a hot start in the first five minutes. We had problems with turnovers. We turned over the ball five times in the first seven possessions. And during that stretch, team leader Shaheen Holloway goes down with a really bad ankle injury. What does Coach Amaker tell you guys at that point to keep you guys poised and keep you in the moment? Yeah, I remember the, the beginning of this game. I remember that uh, we were super excited. You know, we were ready to go. And we were light. We felt like we can... Uh, we can be at any part of the court at any, any given minute or given second. It happens that when you were super excited and super pumped to play, you sort of a little bit overtry, overdo things instead of playing it very simple. So one thing that when Tommy took the time out, one thing he said, guys, when you open, just take a shot. If you open, shoot it. Then the whole team knows that there's a shot, then we'll go for rebounds. So. It was just sort of to give confidence in, in, in decision-making. So if you open, take a shot, everybody sees it, we'll go for rebound. Then we will know and be able to come back on defense without them letting to score easy points. And it's, it sort of it calmed us down and gave us a reassurance on So good shot, good look, we take a shot. And uh, we had quite a few looks because without penetrations and kicks and, uh, you know, being in control, not losing sort of balance, not losing the, the view uh, of the teammates, uh, we knew where everybody was. And little by little, we got back in the game and, you know, continuously shooting the good shots, taking good shots. That's why our percentage was very good. So. It wasn't like uh, some kind of huge surprise that we shot so well. It was just the fact that we, this is how we played. And their defense was a zone defense, sort of matchup, zone, whatever you want to call it. But they didn't match up well against us because our game was, we were quick, 
we're athletic, you know, we could play physical. And if we didn't let them run, then we could control the game. And this is what happened. When you take a good shot, team is in balance, team is in control. We control the transition. And this is how we got back in the game and taking good shots. The shots start falling, not because by by luck, pure luck. It's by because you were good shots. Well, it absolutely worked because Kempel goes on to shoot 34% from that point on for the rest of the game. So yeah. you guys have better floor balance. They didn't get a lot of transition. And their offense in the half court wasn't that robust, honestly. Uh, they just they were hot from three that day as well. They, they hit 12 threes too. But what's unique about the NCAA tournament, in my opinion, is it gives players the opportunity to step up and have that special moment. You and Darius both play all 45 minutes of that game. You score 18. Darius scores 16. I couldn't believe this when I went back and read it. Darius had 14 rebounds in that game. 14 rebounds from the guard position. But the player who stepped up, and, and dare I say it, don't do it, Mike. Don't do it, Mike. I just did it. And shine the brightest. Uh, obviously, backup point guard Ty Shine. He scores a career high 26 points, also adds five assists, including the game winning three in overtime. Talk a little bit about the performance by you, Darius, and Ty that willed the team to this upset. Well, as I said, uh, I think I think Ty really uh, took this opportunity to take it to uh, and, and let it go because you know being a sort of substitute for Shah, you know you learn a lot from uh, from Shaheen, you learn a lot of things from him, uh, but you don't play so much and you don't feel so uh, comfortable because probably you know when it's time to be taken out, you know it's time to come out. So when Shah got hurt, I think Ty got sort of calm and relaxed. That, okay, that's it. I will be in, in this game because there's nobody else can play as a point guard right now. And I have to do, and I will I'll be fine even if I make a mistake. So he was, I think he felt very comfortable, very calm and relaxed. And he was, he led the team perfectly, you know, he penetrated he shot the ball he took uh, all the right decisions the same with Darius Darius felt he could rebound he got extra things not only just by scoring but he could do other things and when a couple shots went in he felt so comfortable and that's we felt all in sync in rhythm and uh, we had you know every time we had Greg Morton and Sam Dallenbert on the court on the defensive end man <laughs> can have better defenders you know we had our whole team was was very talented you know we could we still even after that year i would say if this team say if we would have played the same guys another year we would have improved so much especially on defensive end on the smart decision making on understanding each other even more it's a pity they were so young and I was so old. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, so, I, uh, so I want to follow up on a couple of things that you just mentioned, Remus, because as, as Tom is joking me, I did watch the game the other night. And, and here's Jim Spernarkle doing the color commentary. And as Shaw goes out with the injury and Ty's taking over, he goes, for those of you who don't get to watch Biggie's basketball throughout the season, Ty Shine is probably the best backup point guard in the Big East. And he also goes to say, you know what, if Darius Lincoln hit his first shot, watch out with the confidence from this guy. And those are two bullet points that you kind of already mentioned in your you know, analysis of those two guys. Did you as a team have the same kind of confidence in those two players? 
Of course, they did so well during practices throughout the whole year. They pulled our team forward when me or Sha we weren't at the best. And having Darius who could you know, really shoot very difficult shots. And when he caught fire, it's, oh boy, look out, you know? And then it was very difficult to defend. So the only way you could limit him, it was not letting him get in the ball because he could definitely get the shot off any time he really wanted to. And uh, it's, it was just, you know, obviously shot selection was always uh, a thing that you wanted to, the young guys to have, because that way you increase your percentage of success, the percentage of scoring better shots. And then once you know that there's a right shot to be taken, then the whole team can be ready to rebound. Uh, and so it's, it's something that these two guys really brought to the team is that extra push of the talent they had. And once they caught the good streak, you know, and a little bit of a confidence even more in the tournament, then we saw it all. We, we all saw the result. Well, shot selection seems to come into play in the next game because the dream run ends in the Sweet 16 against number three, Oklahoma State, 68-66. Now, we asked Shah, and Shah said there's no way your team loses if he's playing, and I kind of agree because there's no way Doug Gottlieb's staying in front of Shah. But during that game, you scored a team-high 17 points despite your, your ailments. But overall, three-point shooting that night wasn't there. The team went 7 of 34, and Ty Shine went 2 of 10, and Darius went a 2 of 18. I, I can't even believe he put up 18 three-pointers in that game. So was there any point in that game that Tommy Amaker was sitting there saying, guys, go to the rim, go to the rim? Yeah, unfortunately, this is what we lived and died by, is by our outside shooting. The thing, the thing is that Oklahoma State was a little bit more strong defensive team from what we've encountered before. This is how we felt, at least. Yeah, Desmond Mason, uh, yes, uh, Gottlieb, uh, we could have, you know, sort of used this mismatch a little bit maybe better. But, you know, this this sort of rhythm, we've probably some players felt like we've, we had this rhythm as we played in, against Temple and... We thought that we could carry on, carry on. And I remember coach Tommy was saying, Remus, shoot, shoot, shoot. And I always tried to go to the rim, kick it out, and find a better rhythm, better shots. Uh, even though I, I felt like I, my shots were going in. It's, it, it was a strange game because we were leading. I think it was a couple of minutes to the end. We were up, I'm not mistaken. It was a, it was a tight game throughout. You guys had a one-point lead at halftime. Yeah. It was tied at 53 with eight minutes to play. Yeah. So there was a lot of back and forth in that game. It, it, it was, you know, it was a low-scoring game. Uh, low-scoring game. It was not a pretty game. Uh, it was a lot of long rebounds and sort of a couple, couple things that probably we weren't maybe sure of how to play. Because it was different game. It's, you had to go to the rim. You had to go to the basket. You had to find different sort of... But we lived and died by shooting from outside. And that's why, the you know, in reality, it hurts. But from the other perspective, this is what got us there. You know, I learned from it. And, uh, you know, that's why I always try to become more universal, more all-around player rather than just being a role player or sh just shooting from outside. And that's what, uh, unfortunately, sort of uh, 
still reminds me of, of from the last game, you know, Oklahoma State, man, that hurts. We should have won. We should have won that game. So, so Remus, I, I think Tom has taken my notes and sharing them with the players before they come <laughs> on because because you've mentioned that Tommy's telling you to shoot, and that's the next question I have. I mean, you were the type of player that got your shot in the flow of the offense. You played fundamentally sound. You never really forced things at the basket. But in that game, did you ever think to yourself, I'm the senior captain. Ty and Darius are not having good nights shooting the ball. I got to take over. I got to be more assertive on the offensive side. And you're telling me that Tommy's telling you to shoot the ball. Was was that the message he was trying to share to you? And was was that going through your head? Yes, but you know, it's, you can't during the game. You you can't really change it drastically immediately during the flow. I, I felt like when I drive to the basket or if I get the ball, I always try to make sure it's the highest percentage decision. So whether I take a shot, uh, so I but know Dar- that I can Darius take But Darius was shooting 2 of 18. Anything you could have done would have been a better percentage than 2 of 18. Come on. We were hoping. <laughs> I guess we were hoping for him to catch fire. That next one's going in. That next one's going uh, in. Right. So, so I'm telling Tom, I'm watching the Oregon game to rewind for a second. Darius is three of 16 for the game and you're down 60 to 59. And with no hesitation, there he is bombing away to hit a three to put you guys up with under a minute to play. If I'm a coach, I'm like, no, no. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, moving yeah, on, Mike's going to be labor. It's going to try to belabor these games, but oh, spectacular senior season. You graduate and you move on to a professional career. That was spectacular. You know, you had a great international career playing for the national team. Uh, you played in the European Championships in 2001, 2007, and 11. You even got a bronze medal in the 2007 games. You moved on to two Olympics as well in two, in the summer of 2008 and 12. Now, you won a bronze medal in the Euro Championships, huge accomplishment, but how does that compare to making a medal round appearance in 2008 Olympics? Yeah, nothing can compare to Olympics. Uh, the atmosphere, the whole approach, uh, the, whole, uh, the whole outlook of the, you know, sports in, in general. When you go to Olympics and you walk uh, in Olympic Village and you see Michael Phelps, you see Usain Bolt, uh, you see Kobe Bryant, you see the, all the best athletes in the world. You see Roger Federer, yeah, come on. Then you just, you got chills just running like, <laughs> you, you're ready, you're ready for everything. You, so, I mean, So what's better, the village or the actual games at that point? I mean, it's everything. You, the the opening ceremony. Oh my God! You walk in, and this spectacle. It's something that you can't describe. Uh, I think, think in U.S. Uh, maybe the Super Bowl, maybe. But in Super Bowl is just the football. But Olympics is all the best athletes in the world. You're talking about the guys that are, that are maniacs for sports that they live and die by it. You, your, your sort of competitors, your heroes, your everything, you know, it's, uh, and actually what uh, I have nightmares about this, you know, game against Argentina, who lost for, for, uh, for a bronze medal, you know, in semifinals, we let it go against Spain. We would have played in the final against us, but man, it hurts. And, you know, Ginobili didn't play, uh, for the medal. So we thought, okay, now we have it. And that's when we didn't play well. 
And this, this for, to this day, I'm still remembering. Man, we sh I should have had a medal in Beijing 2008. And it's, it hurts. It hurts. Remus, we But, only do this this podcast on audio. The the facial reactions and the body language that you bring to the, your stories, the audience is missing that right now because it, it's just that you could see the emotion and, and the frustration as to the opportunity that you missed. So it tells me that when you have, and I, I go back and I read this, that you had a torn ACL in December of 2011, but yet you still make it back to play in the Summer Olympics for 2012. Uh, Lithuania gives the U.S. team all they can handle in a five-point loss, 99-94, and you guys lose to Russia in the quarterfinals in a game that you pour in 19 points and just fall short of the medal round. How important was it for you to get back to that Olympics and make a contribution for the national team? Oh, it's... Uh... I think every every person that uh, encounters the injury really really feels like something is limits their life. Something is being taken away from you. And for athletes, it's especially when you're getting ready for Olympics, something that you you can't believe it. You 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 feel that your opportunity is slipping away, and there's and when you know that torn ACL takes from eight to twelve months to to recover, then you're like, man. It's 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 difficult. It's hard, you know. When you watch all these stories uh, of athletes of working hard for four years in individual sports, and they cannot, they can't be in Olympics until another four years. It's tough. It's tough. And uh, I mean, that time for me was the second torn ACL. I tore ACL in 2007 as well. And there was again before Olympics. <laughs> crazy. Good point. So I, I I remember that those periods were the hardest. And actually, I worked the most in my life during those periods of uh, rehab. And I remember, I think I maybe called every physiotherapist in the world, asking all their questions. <laughs> how to recover fastest? <laughs> Tell me how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my oh. god i i think the 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 recovery process probably the most painful not just physically but you have to be crazy committed because during that time you really have to teach your body your leg your knee to function not to lose sort of muscle mass so you have to teach the leg teach the body teach the brain and you have to in order to start running and jumping You have to recover muscle mass, and if you don't work out eight, nine hours a day, the recovery can become very long. Can be very, uh, how to say, uh, frustrating. That's the right word. Very frustrating because you work so hard, and if you take two days off without doing anything, that's it. Your muscle goes back to what you did, what you had before. A month ago, you know, so it's it's not easy. It's not easy, and uh, you know the the satisfaction was so great that I had a chance to play in the Olympics after recovering. And you step on the court, and you're like, oh my God, now that's it. Everything that I know right now, everything that I've done before, uh, I'll be ready to do. I will be ready no matter what, whatever. Whatever happens, boys better look out. <laughs> <laughs> well, outside of the national team, you also had a spectacular professional career, globetrotting all over Europe for the most part. I mean, you spent a lot of time in Italy. You had your number <laughs> retired by Montepaschi Siena in 2009, but you played in Israel. You played in your home country of Lithuania, which must have been special. 
Belgium, Germany, Spain. We always love to ask our globetrotting pirates what their favorite stop was. Now, I would hazard that it was probably Italy, but what was your favorite spot? I think every country was special. Uh, oh, that's a cop out. Come on, Remus. You know, they retired yeah, your number. They retired, and then you went back to play yeah. for the same team while the numbers yeah. retired. Come on, it's got to be Italy. Yeah, it's, it definitely is because uh, I played the best basketball in my life over there, you know. But for example, I started a professional career in Israel. That's where I met my wife. She was a basketball player as well. Then I moved on to Lithuania. Then I played in Belgium, Germany, and all those countries. I chose those teams uh, not to sightseeing, but uh, to <laughs> to actually play. And I always chose uh, the teams that were giving me opportunity to play a lot. This is how I felt I can get better, faster. And it, it worked. It worked, and after Germany, I went to Italy and uh, ended up in Siena, where we uh, became among four best teams in Europe. It, it was it was a great opportunity to win, and actually, we were favorites to win the EuroLeague. One year, however, we came up short. Truly, I think uh, learned so much in Italy. Obviously, I spent so many years there, and the basketball that we played was a combination of. Uh, intelligence, uh, physicality, athleticism, teamwork, winning all these championships there really showed me and taught me how to win and what to do on a consistent basis. This is what actually really stays in my mind. And all my daughters were pretty much born during that time in Siena in Italy. So I can't complain. The country of love. <laughs> country of love. Nothing like is. little girls. Yeah. Nothing like little girls, Remus. <laughs> All right, Remus. So, so yeah. you get your number retired in Italy, and that's quite an honor, but you piled up the awards. You got numerous MVP awards for, you know, all-star games and tournament finals and league MVPs for the whole season. And then you're on eight different league or Super Cup championship rosters as well. Do any of them specifically hold any special meaning to you? You know, uh, in Italy, we were quite a quite a good team. We were very one of the top four teams in Europe. But uh, to me, I always remember the first one, the first uh, championship that we won in, uh, against Bologna in the final. I think it was 2007. And it was the toughest one because, you know, we were sort of, say, for European basketball, quite young team. And, quite inexperienced in European basketball in Italy at that time was quite quite high level and for us to win a championship it meant a lot to play against uh, great teams that championship in Italy of Italian championship really uh, sort of helped to understand really what you really have to do in order to win this this was probably the most special one speaking of special Whenever a player gets inducted into the Seton Hall Hall of Fame, which you were just announced as a new inductee for the 2020 Hall of Fame class, that's got to be a pretty big honor. Unfortunately, it's been postponed due to COVID-19 and everything. But what does the honor mean to you looking back all these years at your Seton Hall career? It's, it's uh, honestly, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And I... I feel maybe overappreciated because I think everyone that played on the team contributed the, the the most and they gave it all. I mean, I'm I'm just lucky, just happy, uh, greatly honored, and I I can't even express because 
with all everything what has happened prior to that i mean once again i mean give this to some lithuanian kid that couldn't even speak uh, couldn't even didn't know how to dress that you know was a clown of the <laughs> school from prattsburg new york from prattsburg new york and <laughs> you know and and all the people that helped me before to get to there and and now when i sort of this makes me to reflect once again and honestly to go back and i want to thank everyone who who was a part of my process of growing process as a as a person as a player as a human being and you know I, it's it's actually an award to them not to me because all i did is just not to let them down well it seems philanthropy is a big part of your life as well in 2012, you started the Remus Caucanus Charitable Foundation, nonprofit organization which operates entirely in Lithuania, giving charitable assistance to children who have been diagnosed with cancer. Can you take a moment and tell us how you came to start the foundation and what the goal and missions are? It was uh, probably the moment where I would say a combination of many things that happened uh, and led to that. First of all, my father had cancer, and many uh, on many occasions when I went to the hospital with the national team to visit children, we saw that the situation at that time in Lithuania was quite poor and quite difficult. And our visits made them so happy. Just a visit, you know, we're not even talking about helping financially or any other ways. Uh, just our visits and made them so happy. It was they were in heaven. And knowing that uh, cancer kids can't leave the hospital for years, you know, they go back and they can't do anything. You know, I had this idea sort of to uh, why don't I just make this more on a regular basis? And then uh, I took it up with the Federation, Lithuanian Basketball Federation, and they helped me. They helped me to put it together, put together the foundation and very slowly step by step sort of try to do this on a regular basis and visit the hospital and uh, it's it, it, something that really uh, took a big place in my heart and actually the most important thing that gave me a lot of motivation to continue with this work it was my father that he said oh, I used to always talk to him and say you know what do you need how can I help you you know and my father was ill with cancer uh, five years and he said don't worry about me nobody can really help me anymore you just go help the ones that actually need help more than i do and help the children help the ones that and these words stuck to me and uh, now i'm you know really pushing our foundation to to grow and become stronger and better and and i'm proud to say that we became one of the biggest foundations in lithuania well remus before we let our guests go we make them walk the plank. We're going to ask you five rapid fire questions. We want five rapid fire answers. Don't think too hard about it. Just oh boy. let us know the first thing that comes off the top of your head. Are you ready? Always ready. <laughs> All right, here we go. Question number one, most points scored in any game at any level? 75. Which team was your biggest arch rival? Rutgers. Toughest road environment? Cantu. Toughest opposing player you've ever played? Richard Hamilton. Best Seton Hall player you've ever seen play? Terry DeHere. Bonus question. Who is the greatest international player to play for Seton Hall? Nikos Galis. 
Congratulations, Remus. You've walked the plank. We ask Remus, we ask all the players a silly question at the end. Half the time they pick themselves. You didn't even, you didn't even think about your name, right? <laughs> no Arturus? The player from the homeland, and you didn't go Arturis. I'm waiting for Tommy to throw a plug out for for Andrew Gaze. No, Tommy's a big Andrew Gaze fan. No, they were great. They were great. But Nikos Gallis is another level. Why so? Because Danny Calandrillo told some great stories about Nick Gallis, but where we that's kind of before our time. So does he have an? Is he more of an international legend? I know he had some great years once the. once the Greg Tynes of the world moved on and he got some more shots this senior season, but apparently he was a, he was like a God internationally. No, it's indescribable. He's, uh, he's like Dražen Petrovic. He's like, uh, wow, really? Okay. Sabonis. He's on that level. Like Andrew Gaze in Australia, you know, he's a legend, but just my personal opinion, Nikos Galis is, is, if, if you go back to these championships, European championships that Greece uh, used to play in these uh, against USSR and you know, Yugoslavia, and the, the, he was unstoppable. He was truly unstoppable. He was, he was like Dražen Petrovic back in Europe, and it was another level. That's that's some, that's level. some high praise. That's some high praise because I remember growing up and they said Dražen was just. He, he was on, on a different level at that point. And you said yeah. Arbutus as well. So that is some high praise. So we're excited. This was our first international interview. Remus, we can't thank you enough for spending some time this evening with us. And we wish thank you nothing you. but continued success. Thank you, boys. You guys are amazing. Call me a boy, Tommy. He thinks I'm still young, Tommy. Call me a boy, Tommy. I'm loving this. It's the best interview yet. The video must have gone out. (laughs) Remus Caucanus, everybody. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please listen to our previous podcast, which include interviews with former players, Mark Bryant, Danny Calandrillo, Adrian Griffin, Jerry Walker, and Shaheen Holloway. For Tommy Chilkoharski, I am Mike Dizzy Deziri, and you have been listening to Left Coast Pirates.